Hey, Saints Saint fans, it is the weekend that we look forward to the most every year. It is Head of the Charles 2023, and Rachel and I are bringing you this episode, especially on Head of the Charles weekend. We hope you're going to be there. If you're not, let us be your correspondents. Let us be the eyes and ears of Boston for you. So listen up, stay with us all weekend long, and go race, go hard. Hey, Rachel. Good morning, Tara. How Good are you? Good morning. I'm amazing. How are you? I am. I'm doing okay this week. I am really excited about heading back to Boston for Head of the Charles. 100%. So much on the list, but when it comes down to it, part of why I'm so excited to head back to Boston is because I grew up in Massachusetts. Not right. in Boston, but head west, and I grew up in Western Mass. And so I have a real affinity for Massachusetts, and I always feel like I'm going home when I head back there. Oh, I love that. And to add that to the nation's largest regatta, it's our Super Bowl. I always say it's our Super Bowl. That just must feel really nice. Here on the West Coast, a lot of us call going to Boston, going back east, as in yeah. we came from there, but we go back <laughs> east every every uh, every year. And Boston is just such a great town. I love Philly almost as much, but Boston just really has a special place because I've had so many good memories there, and I bet you have too. Yeah, and you know, I just, I grew up outside of Boston. My parents went to college in Boston, but growing up, I actually did not spend a lot of time there in the city. I'm not quite sure why. When I graduated from college, I didn't really consider going to Boston. Mm -hmm. So it was really only once that I started rowing and going to Head of the Charles that I really started falling in love with the city. And I think part of that is because today and for the last 20 plus years, I've lived in Washington, D.C., which is a similarly sized city. It feels kind of the same to me. Also very historic. Yeah. It's a very historic. The architecture is fairly similar with the, the row houses and, and yeah. things like that. Yeah, I really, I I loved Boston. And I almost moved to Boston. Community Rowing came calling and asked me to come interview for a job a few years ago, many years ago, actually. Mm -hmm. And they brought me in for one whole day. And it was just a whirlwind day. And I had yeah. to really think about it, uh, whether I wanted to move my family to Boston. And ultimately, we didn't do it. But yeah. um, so it was interesting to think about, like, really uprooting and going somewhere that was completely different. Because Seattle is so new in comparison to Boston and Philadelphia. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So when we, you and I, started talking about Head of the Charles and what sort of an episode of the podcast we wanted to do, you immediately came up with Ellen Mintzner. Oh, and first name I think of. Yeah. Yeah. First so name. She, so she's a Massachusetts native, born and bred, um, spent some time away, but came back to um, her hometown and then has now been in Boston for many years. But tell me, how did you meet Ellen and what's your connection to her? So my connection was back in the day in 2010, I was approached to start an adaptive rowing program where I was approached with an adaptive rower and which then led to starting an adaptive rowing program. In fact, it started in 2009, but 2010 was when we kind of just said, okay, here we go. And when I was looking around for people to help me figure this out, you know, how do you do adaptive rowing? What kind of equipment do you use? Uh, a lot of people pointed me to Ellen Mintzner for support. And what I loved about my relationship with Ellen was she is a take no prisoners, very outspoken, very bold type of a person, very funny, very smart. And at the time she was like, listen, this is how you need to do things. This is how we do things. It was very helpful to just have someone that was so confident. Mm. I ultimately ended up using Ellen, not only as a mentor, but she became a colleague. And she always mm -hmm. treated me as a colleague, which was really nice. And a mixture of, of her expertise and her humor. And then we became kind of compadres on all things US para rowing and, and everything. So we've collaborated, we've presented together, we've coached together. You know, we've had a lot of great experiences together. So I'm really excited that you're gonna get to know her a little bit better today. And then we'll both look forward to seeing her in Boston. Yes, we have a lot of people on our list to say hi to in Boston. Ellen's right up there. And uh, listen for her voice from one of the announcers booths. Hi, I'm Ellen Minsner, and you're listening to Steady State Podcast. Sit ready. Here at Steady State Podcast, we're really interested in backstories, real life experiences on and off the water that make people the rowers, coaches, and coxswains they are today. 
From indoor rowing to flat water masters to coastal and ocean adventurers, we celebrate you who represent the global humanity of our sport. Together, we disrupt and expand the narrative about rowing culture. We're your hosts, Tara Morgan and Rachel Friedman. If you're a first time listener, welcome. If you're coming back for another episode, thanks so much for being here. On the last episode, Lindsay dares shoot. In 2002, Lindsay reluctantly walked on at University of Virginia's rowing team. Within a year, she became an NCAA Division I All-American. In four years, she broke a world record and earned her first world championship. Within six years, her hard work manifested a gold medal at the 2008 Beijing Olympics. Today, she seeks to help others remove self-imposed limitations. And this fall, 20 years after it all began, the author of Better Great Than Never returns to UVA as an assistant coach, paying it forward. This thought-provoking conversation considers serendipity, struggle, pressures on student-athletes, walk-ons, team-building, rowing for life, head of the Charles and being coxed by Mary Whipple, and a whole lot more. If you missed it, listen anytime at steadystatenetwork.com slash podcast or anywhere you get podcasts. Steady State Podcast is sponsored in part by Barb, Concept2, and EB5 Investors. Hello, hello. Hello, Ellen. Hello. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Nice to see you. When we talked, when we were talking about doing our head of the Charles preview, I was like, we got to talk to Ellen. Like she's just got all the inside scoop. So we're excited. My name is Ellen Minzner and uh, I learned to row, geez, I think in 1986 at Villanova University. It was a club sport back then. No scholarships, uh, no fancy gear, no nothing, uh, but a lot of great people. And that's what kind of launched my career. Since Villanova, I went on to make uh, the U.S. national team five times, I think, uh, rowing in the lightweight women's pair and lightweight women's four. Uh, I was fortunate enough to row with Christine Collins in the pair when we won the world championships in 1995 and 1996. And uh, from that, I stepped over into what was just becoming uh, the NC2A sport for women's rowing and took up some college coaching jobs. I had coached at uh, Wellesley College prior to that but then coached at Kansas State, Cal Berkeley, and uh, then moved back to Boston, where I started doing a bit more outreach coaching, including work with a Row Boston program, military program, and programs for people with disabilities. So that sort of rolled me into the next phase of my uh, coaching career with the U.S. Paranational team. I first served as the head coach for the PR34, or back then it was called the LTA4, in 2013, and I coached that boat to a string of silver medals from 2014 to 20, 2018, I guess, when I shifted my role into the high performance director for the para program. And that's where I've been since. It's been an amazing opportunity to shape the program from a different perspective, as opposed to just coaching a single event. And uh, I'm super happy with uh, how we've been able to organize what's essentially been a, a part-time trials-based program into a camp system with speed orders and uh, a whole system of athlete development opportunities. And I really feel like we're just beginning to see the benefits of creating that kind of structure for our athletes on the international stage. On a scale of one to 10, how has your rowing week been? Oh, if it's a rowing week, like no rowing activity. <laughs> we right. just, got oh, back, really? just got back from the world championship. If you asked me a couple of weeks ago, it'd be like a full on rowing 24 seven. And uh, uh, the venue in Serbia was amazing, uh, but I had uh, just kind of getting back into the proper time zone, taking care of a few business items, but um, no rowing or coaching on my past week. But as I said, Serbia was uh, a great venue, actually, um, a really strong regatta for us overall. I think the coaches have done a great job being collaborative and cooperative. And I think that was what really made it a great world championships, not just the results, because we had some really strong results, but really the collaboration across. That's awesome. It's It seems like the program, since you've taken hold of it, is now you're getting a clearer sense and you came into the Olympic cycle kind of at the right time, don't you think? That that we're looking at Paris 2024 and LA 2028 and in terms of the rowing. And are they changing the distance for all the rowing events to 1500? 
in LA? Well, it's going to, it's going to match the distance at LA. So the, every event will, will run the same. I'm not sure if it's exactly 1500 or how they're, how they're doing it. I, I think it's 1500, but yeah, it'll be the same distance for all events. The last time the para events were a different distance uh, was uh, 2016. So mm. 2017 was the first time that all the para events moved to the same 2000 meter distance and whatever distance is contested at uh, future world championships will be also the same. I'd love to dig into that a little bit too, because when one of the discussions when para moved from 1000 to 2000 was not al- allowing a change in boat class and still saying that the para had to row these really heavy boats and like rowers choice was a hashtag that was starting to use around town and, and these faster, lighter boats um, and allowing those into the events. How do you feel about the change for LA? Well, for me, I don't care. It's still the same training zones. You're still talking about a similar overall time that you're training for, like a difference between a thousand and 2000. That's pretty dramatic. That is probably a different approach to the training and and the lead up. But the difference between these two events, you're still talking about the same uh, aerobic and anaerobic capacities when you look at it. So for us, it's maybe some some tactical changes when you get closer to that race, but it's a long way off. We don't plan on on really changing too much except tactics leading in. So we do this fun thing called the hot seat, and we okay. want to know a, a little bit more about you. Are you ready? Sure, I'm ready. Port or starboard? Oh, port. Although I rode starboard in college, but now I'm a, a lifelong port. Sweep or skull? Sweep. I wish I were a bit better in sculling, but uh, I do it well for training, but I am most comfortable being completely lopsided and rowing on port. Hallelujah. Amen. You are in good company. We are the same. <laughs> totally lopsided starboard. Totally rower. lopsided already. Let's just exploit that. Uh, bow seat, stroke seat, or engine room? A stroke. So to have the stroke coach, I have. I need all of the stuff in front of me. Yeah, you know, I have to say, just as an aside, so I, I row and cox and coach, but when I'm coxing and I've got my cox box and my stroke has a stroke coach, I don't know. It's it's awkward because I'm saying what I need to say based off my cox box. And then that stroke is like, but I know <laughs> like you're okay. one stroke off. Part two of that is I'm a sweeper, but my club is primarily sculling and they've been putting me in the stroke seat of a quad and I've used a stroke coach uh, just to confirm, you know, what's happening, but it makes me look down too much. So I have to work on that. But I'm in a quad the other day with three avid single scholars. They each had a stroke coach. There was a lot of feedback. There was a lot of different kinds of strokes. It was just like, oh, put me in a sweet boat and just have someone tell me what to do. I also love to bow a quad because I really enjoy steering. I like to get people through those bridges as safely and slickly as I can. So later in this interview, we're definitely going to be talking with you about head of the Charles. So this question, head race or sprint race? I don't know. I like them all. I mean, I love a head race because it's so fun to just pass people like that format's like really great. But for the sprint racing, especially in a lightweight pair, um, it, it's, a, it's a slower boat class and the race really unfolds and you get a chance to sort of settle in and read the race evolve around you. You're, you sort of have that beginning, middle, end. And uh, I really, I really love that aspect of the of sprint racing. Uh, Unisuit or tank and trowel? Honestly, I, I, my favorite unisuit ever is the 1995 unisuit. Every other person hates it, but it was the most comfortable one. That's the one I wear all the time. Uh, and it is actually like still in reasonably good shape. So that's my favorite unisuit. Oh, that's, oh, that's impressive. Favorite Cox command to give or receive? So my favorite Cox moments probably are maybe too colorful for a podcast. Totally um, fine. Don't worry but, about it. We've heard it all. <laughs> uh, I'll just give a shout out to Amanda Cashman if she's out there listening anywhere. All time favorite Cox and hilarious person. She just brought a lot of color to to our racing for sure. Next is uh, Tom Tiffany, another like hard to compare the two all time uh, best head racing Cox and I ever had. I never raced a sprint race with Tom, but he's pheno- he's a phenomenal coxswain. We were on the lightweight eight, and he would often be our coxswain and had been our coach at Boston Rowing Center a training center, if you will, before official training centers existed for the lightweight and open national teams. And uh, we're in the lightweight aid. And I just remember he stared so perfectly, like every buoy was just right 
right under my rigor every single time that uh, mm-hmm. that we needed to. Any commands that you can share with us? Well, sure. Uh, there's a one race where we were uh, racing at nationals in Indianapolis and Amanda was our coxswain. And we're always told coming into these races, it's before we're being selected for the national team and that, oh, all the collegiate kids are going to, you know, kick your butt and you're not going to be able to compete with athletes coming off of a full racing season, especially off the line, blah, 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 blah. So, cause we hadn't raced it. Like our first race would be nationals when we come out of BRC. So uh, I can remember in our pre-race meeting, we sort of adjusted for that fact like hey we're way fitter if they get us off the line no problem so we were going to come off that line pretty happy to be um you know maybe a few seats down uh that that was like our, our plan let's to, to not really be too worried about that would reel them in later anyway we're sort of next to the other boat which is all the pre-elites they used to call them uh, with the collegiate athletes who are just coming into the system and anyway, we come off the line and we're four seats up after the, you know, starting 20. And we're like pretty happy with that. And so the coxswain is nearby in the lane next to us. And she says, okay, you know, Boston Rowing Center is four seats up. Don't worry. And Amanda turns to her right over her shoulder and yells back. That's right. Don't worry. Effing panic. And <laughs> and then we were like so terrified as to like not want to lose that. We just took it off. So that was oh, probably oh my god. It was like <laughs> we we don't hear we don't hear very often. Were you the stroke of that boat? I was. Yeah. Yeah. So you were right there with her. Yeah. You yeah. don't hear very often about coxswains talking to other coxswains in the race, mm-hmm. but I have heard some very funny stories when that does happen. Just absolute smack talk. Okay. Uh, favorite place to row. Oh, Lucerne. Popular answer. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. The cows with the mm-hmm. bells. Cowbells. It's always flat. It's beautiful water. It's a, definitely my favorite place uh, to row or to compete, actually. I'd say compete. Yeah. Best piece of rowing advice you've ever received? I don't know. That's a tough one. And this is probably more vague. I don't remember exactly who or when it came from, but uh, just about more like trusting the process and your own improvement because it's really hard in team boats to know where you are and where you stand but um, focusing on your own development as an athlete or your own uh, progress in terms of different uh, capacities that you might have whether it be your 2k score or bo2 max or different things like that i think that really helped me stay in it over the long haul because i had some early success and then some failure and then some big success so it's like you have to have something that kind of brings you through because not everyone's trajectory is linear upward, you know, uh, each thing building upon the next and neatly stacked on top of the other. It's quite often a jagged and precipitous climb <laughs> uh, to where you want to go. Yeah. And I can say that that's across the board, right? No matter kind of what level you're rowing. And so Tara and I are master's rowers. A lot of our listeners are master's rowers. And even for us masters, right, throughout the season, like you can have a very jagged season and trajectory. And I like that notion of being patient and trusting the process. And it's good for, uh, I teach a lot of masters learn to row. And that's a big message to the learn to row folks, because they're used to, they don't like to feel incompetent. Nobody does, you know. Um, And so just that long process and kind of appreciating that. Embrace the structure, right? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Let's find out how this all started. Rachel? Tara, we didn't ask the very last question. We always Oh, what's that? Oh, coffee before or after a row? Probably both. Hot (laughs) before, iced after. Ooh, yes. Team iced coffee. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for uh, answering our hot seat questions. We all know you a little bit better now. And uh, like Tara said, now we're going to dig in. So a big piece of Steady State Podcast is getting to know the story behind the story. So we're going to talk with you about Head of the Charles and kind of how you got to where you are today. And we want to go way back. So you're a native of Lawrence, Mass. And mm-hmm. when you were growing up, there was not rowing there. So how did you get involved with rowing? I walked on to women's rowing at Villanova University. I originally thought maybe I would like to run track there, but I was there in the era of like Sonia O'Sullivan, those incredible milers. So I wasn't likely to make the track team. Same with basketball. I kind of thought that might be a fun sport, but definitely was not recruited and Villanova basketball is quite good. (laughs) So I walked on in my sophomore year in the spring. So I only rode that one spring, but um, when I came home after that spring semester, I thought, oh, they probably just going to go row in my town. We have a river. I just probably don't know that they have rowing. And 
so it took me kind of a while to figure out there was no rowing in Lawrence, sort of maybe not by design, but it wasn't really as popular or if really existent uh, in a public school uh, type of community. I got in my car and I drove up river. I said, somebody must be rowing on this river. I'm going to go find them. And I, I drove all the way to Lowell. I say all the way, it wasn't that far. Um, and Lowell had had a strong club program over the years, uh, University of Lowell or Lowell Tech, I think it was maybe back in the day. And they had summer rowing. So I rode there and uh, met up with some phenomenal athletes and who were going to Canadian Henley that summer. And I had no idea what Canadian Henley was, but everyone needs a, a formative Canadian Henley experience in their rowing resume. So um, that was mine. And that's when I, I got hooked. Yeah. What do you remember about those first days back at Villanova when you walked on and you get in this big boat and, this, and no one comes to rowing knowing how to row. So it's, it's just sort of a foreign concept. What do you remember those first days of catching water and trying to figure it out? Well, I mean, I grew up on a lake uh, in the summer, actually, so been very familiar with canoes, kayaks, all that stuff, and actually had like a small child's rowboat as a kid. So I kind of knew my way around a boat and, and felt very confident in a boat. But we rode on Boathouse Row back then. So Villanova, they are upstream now and well, up in Conshohocken. But uh, back then we were at a bachelor's barge on Boathouse Row. And I just remember those first days on the water where we were just figuring stuff out and the, the coach had a fairly hands-off approach there <laughs> those first couple of days. If you don't know Boathouse Row, bachelor's is kind of in the middle, right? So you got clubs up and, and down uh, the row there. And I remember we were in the way and we just got so many unfriendly comments from people trying to get around us. It was a little bit humiliating, but we didn't really care. <laughs> and so, I, I mean, I, I had a great experience there those first years and it just was such a, I think I love the effort of it. I just love to try and pull hard and try and figure it out. And we rode uh, wooden pococks back then. I rode in a lightweight eight. We raced in a pocock. Then I raced in fours and we had fiberglass boats then. But that was like, it feels like a ancient history now based on the boats that are out there. But I had great friends, great coaches there. I loved rowing on Boathouse Row. It was just, just incredible. I was down there recently for a, um, a power rowing, uh, learn to row camp. And um, that was the first time I had been back on the water really since, I mean, maybe I had done a couple head of the Schuylkills since I graduated, but to be back on that water, like was really cool. I love Boathouse Row. Oh yeah. <laughs> I remember a bunch of years feeling like if you weren't a member of one of those clubs, it was really just like impossible to get in. This was pretty early on in my rowing career. And I felt like there's no way I'm ever going to see the inside of one of these boathouses. And then one year I was there for a regatta and I just got up the nerve and I literally just knocked on the door and somebody let me in and we started chatting. And then that person brought me to another boathouse, to another boathouse. And that was just a real eye opener for me. Then I think that was the beginning of me understanding that rowers like to talk about rowing, no matter who you are and, you know, just ask and somebody will say yes. Yeah. For us, we got ushered in like, so as a college program, I don't remember my, my first coach was Tully Vaughn. So I think he just had an affiliation there. I really don't know how we got in there as a college program. We just had that connection with them, uh, with bachelors, and we were there like super early. We had to be back on campus um, for eight o'clock classes, and it was about a 45-minute drive and traffic back. So we were there super early. So we didn't know any different. We just hung out there and had spring break there and thought it was our own place, even though it probably wasn't. <laughs> When did you start thinking maybe I can go for the national team? Like when did that seed get planted and and how did that yeah, process sure. go? Yeah, I moved to Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts after I graduated and uh, uh, was living with my sister at the time and community rowing. We had just kind of started a few years prior and uh, she said, oh, while you're looking for a job, you should go and check this out. They're, they're hiring coaches and paid coxswains just to get people on the water. And so I did that. And just as it turned out, like every single person who was coaching there was also trying out for the national team, like all of them. <laughs> and I thought, wow. And they all trained at this place called BRC. And I thought, wow, that, that could be kind of a, an interesting thing to try. So um, it took me a couple of years because you know, we really just rode and competed in that season at Villanova. Like we didn't have like year round training and I hadn't really trained much over that first summer. So it just was the people that I fell into step with uh, coaching at community rowing, like 
they were all training for this, this thing called the national team. And I just wanted to be part of it because I really enjoyed uh, the people that I worked with and kind of admired what they were going through and going toward and said, Hey, I think this might be for me. <laughs> That's an amazing opportunity and like a door that you didn't even know that you were looking for just right there. Yeah. Yeah. I really didn't even know how serious it was until I got cut. <laughs> um, got cut my first uh uh, attempt to be at the Boston Rowing Center and then kind of worked my way back in. Uh, that was when I switched to, to port. I had rowed starboard and they just sort of needed a port and they said, oh, can you row port? And I was like, absolutely. And I had yeah. never rowed like if that's what I need to do here, I'll do it. Um, and then it almost was a more natural side for me. Yeah, I feel that way about starboard. I got pushed to starboard just out of need on the team and it ended up being way more appropriate. Any boat, any seat, any day, right? That's right. That's right. Steady State Podcast is sponsored in part by Breakwater Realty Group. Daydreaming of new lakes, rivers, and coastlines to row and play on? Consider a home in Maine. The Breakwater Realty Group, brokered by eXp Realty, can help you find your home away from home or relocate to a new primary home with ease. Connect with the team by visiting breakwaterrealtygroup.com and scheduling an obligation-free buying consultation. Maine. It's the way life should be. Listen to more episodes about everything from indoor rowing to rowing across oceans. Search the podcast archive at steadystatenetwork.com slash podcast. And while you're there, could you leave us a review? When you do, it helps our podcast get noticed and reach more ears. In two, we're back with Ellen Minsner. That's one, two. So you go into the national team and you gave us a little synopsis of, of your experience there. Can you just uh, run through that and then how you decided to kind of retire and forge a new path? Sure. Uh, well, I made my first team in 1991, which was great. Uh, we rode in Vienna. We raced in the lightweight women's four. Uh, we placed thirds. We got a bronze medal, which was which was great. But I, it's kind of like with rowing, there's always something like you're happy, but then there's always something more that, that you want to do. So I really wanted to stay with it and um, I didn't have a, a great trajectory from that first race. We went from uh, 91 third place, uh, then made the team again, stroking the four on Montreal and we came fourth. And then, uh, the next year I was an alternate and the next year I didn't make the team. Hmm. And so that was like one of those big deciding moments, people saying, Oh, you're all washed up. Vienna was as good as it gets, you know, blah, blah, blah. But that's when I really, um, had to kind of take stock, uh, in what I was doing and, and looking at my own performance uh, on the erg basically and seeing that I really liked the the fact that I was still cutting big percentages off my times I thought well I'll stop when my when I stop improving you know on my own so um, I stayed with it another year and um, the year either before that or that year they added the lightweight women's pair which I had been training in quite a lot in the meantime and uh, came back into that event and um for 95 and 96 with the same partner uh, and won the world championship. So um, it's kind of like a lesson in playing the long game and staying with it uh, because it does take quite a while to, with some exceptions, of course, but for the most part, it takes a long time to build the proper aerobic base for competing and rowing. It takes a long time to sort of, you know, figure out how, how to be successful in your particular event. I'm really glad that I did stick around. Well, you don't need to convince me about the pair because that is my heart and soul. I love the pair so much. What do you What do you think is so special about the pair? You're going to hear from everybody like the, the boat itself will teach you. Like if you can pay attention enough and listen to it, you, it's almost give you all the feedback that any coach could ever give you. So it's it's a great boat and it's a great boat for developing bigger boats and, and your skills that you can bring into the bigger boats. So of course that's you know pretty common knowledge. But for me, um, and I think it was maybe just the, the boat that we had or whatever, I, I always felt like, uh, felt most comfortable in it. It felt like it was just once my feet were in the foot stretchers there and just kind of how, how I fit within the geometry of a pair felt really natural to me, almost like just an extension of my body. So it felt like very easy for me to move a pair and understand what was going on. So I think that's why I really love the pair because it just felt so natural to me in a way that most people feel very unnatural or unsteady in a pair. 
So 95, 96, that was the season you came back into the pair, had a good season, a great season. And then uh, was that your last season with the national team? Yeah. Yeah. I, I knew that. Um, so in 95, 96, obviously everyone's going for those Olympic events. Uh, we had a very strong lightweight women's double and that's the only Olympic event. So all of the lightweights were trying to gun for that particular event, but, um, it was a strong double and it was really hard to break into that. So Christine and I actually went for the open weight pair, uh, for the 96 trials, like as odd as that might seem being lightweights going into that event, we had a strong women's pair as well, but honestly, you know, we, we felt really good about what we could do in a pair and tried to make a go of it, uh, but didn't, didn't really work. But in the <clears throat> Olympic year, they will offer all of the non-Olympic events, at at the world championship so going for 96 olympics was going to be the last one for me uh and when that didn't happen it's not too much of a jump to just continue on to the world championships that year uh so we went there and um actually raced against the uh the romanian double switched into the pair so they went to the olympics and then also did the worlds in the lightweight pair um so that was somewhat satisfying that we had our our shot at them christine went on to to row the pair in the next games but i was definitely retiring and was looking at uh, coaching jobs at that point so i knew that that would be my last year stepping away from from racing at that level you knew that you had a a place to go something that you wanted to do remind me where did you end up coaching right after that um kansas state Jenny Hale was the head coach and uh, they were bringing that program from club to, to varsity, similar to many of the other football schools that were uh, coming into Title IX compliance by bringing up their women's rowing program. So it was two years there. From there, I went to coach at Cal Berkeley, which was an amazing experience, uh, two years at Cal Berkeley. But then uh, the pull to come home was just a little bit too great. So came back and was trying to figure out where where do I fit within coaching? Is it college coaching? What's, what's going to be the thing? Um, and that's when I started coaching at the Girls Row Boston program, coaching slash uh, program director. When you came home from college that first summer after you had just stepped on to Villanova and to look around Lawrence where you grew up and think, where's the rowing? Like, I clearly have yeah. been touched by this sport, moved by this sport, interested in this sport. And now I have to drive to find it. Is that what inspired uh, that coming back home and then how can I basically not have that happen for anybody else? Like make growing yes. more accessible. I mean, it was kind of a combination of things. Like one, I wasn't sure college coaching was going to be for me Two, uh, my mom was not doing well at the time and being away just didn't seem like uh, the right thing to do. But three, I always had in the back of my head that one day I'm rowing is going to happen in Lawrence. Like I, I knew that Jeez, I think it was in 1993. Three. I can't remember what year it was. I, I had started a small, just a summer program in Lawrence there, but a big part of it is like making sure that people from a community like mine, where not many people have the opportunity to travel the world and do the things that I did, like those are the opportunities I wanted to make sure were available to uh, communities like Lawrence or Boston Public Schools, et cetera. So it definitely was in the back of my mind since those early days, because it was like, well, why wouldn't they? This is like a perfect place to row. Why don't they have rowing? Like something has to happen. I had, I had coached at the Windsor School while I was uh, training for the national team. And uh through contacts with that, had some connections at, at Bay Bank, and um, they gave some funds to get something started there. So it was really fun. I had borrowed boats from Radcliffe and MIT and brought them up to Lawrence for a summer program, but it really didn't last because I wasn't the one staying with that program. It's hard to hand off. So fast forward several years later, I did become a executive director of the local boating program and brought rowing in there, and it's been a, a thriving club kind of ever since Greater Lawrence Rowing still exists and has a good draw from the surrounding communities as well. That's a big piece of it, making sure people have access to opportunity. Because what I got from rowing, like, I mean, it was successful, but to see the world and do the things that I've done and meet the people that I've met, I wanted to make sure that not everyone has to take that path, but uh, I want to make sure it would be available to someone if they did. Just as an aside, you mentioned coaching at Berkeley and we've had Sarah Nevin on the show. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you were there at the same time. And then you also uh, mentioned. No, I was there right before her. So she took my role. I was like the novice coach or assistant coach. I don't remember exactly the title. She came right after me. And then you mentioned Windsor School. And we had yeah. uh, Lisa Stone on the okay. show. Where you yeah. Did you cross paths with Lisa Stone? Well, I do every day at Cambridge Boat Club. But uh, I was just before her, actually. 
I stayed there until 95 and then I had to travel for some more camps that year to try for that 96 team. It just was not possible to stay. You have this long, interesting rowing history and rowing career. And, you know, we could talk about just the rowing career. We could talk about just your coaching career. We could talk about just your um, community development career. I would love to spend an hour on each of just those things. Right. Um, <laughs> so um, I'm going to ask you a kind of broad question and see where it goes. So today you're known and respected for asking questions, generating discussions, creating awareness challenging U.S. rowing and the Olympic Committee. What has been the driving force for you all these years? Well, I'll just say, I don't know, probably this sense of equity and justice. I mean, why do things have to be a certain way? I think it's it's super important because I I don't really consider myself as a rabble rouser or or anything like that. I've been really fortunate because I think people in the rowing community are very accessible And when I say accessible, I don't really mean anything related to disability. What I just mean is I fell into people who were really open to having conversations. And uh, when I when I first even was thinking about coaching, you know, it was like Liz O'Leary and Carrie Graves, like, oh, ride my launch. And what do you think? And take the megaphone. I mean, like these are people who, you know, in many other sports would be really hard to have an opportunity like that. So I just think that the storied historical people in the Boston rowing community were so very open and accessible um, to different conversations. But I do think I always had this sense of what is just and equitable. And coupling those two things together gave me the confidence, I guess, to to keep asking questions and and find people that may be also willing to explore making things different or making things better. I think that's probably the thing that I would say has has driven all of that. Do you think that you tie that to something from earlier on in your life or from certain mentors or your family? That's really that's really tough. I feel like probably just my my upbringing and and who we were and you know I I have a I have a cousin actually who has just started his own nonprofit and it's it's called For Others and it's just like bringing stuff to people and it's like the, the motto is we want to do as much as we can as often we can for as many as we can and and I feel like you know growing up in kind of a blue collar type of town and in a community that never judged others but tried to do for others and and give and receive help when it was needed um, I think it was a it was a really solid background for for who I am and and why why I do the things I do. And I can say, as a recipient, like a direct recipient of your mentorship, you paying it forward to me, you know, was really important back in two thousand and thirteen when I started seize the Or Foundation. I first had to look around and at the time, you know, who was doing what and how does this work and how, what is adaptive rowing and what is this? I did reach out to a lot of the folks up in Canada, but when it came to the U S everybody said, you got to talk to Alan. And it really changed the game for me because, you know, the East coast is so far away from where I am. So the Canadians were very comfortable, (laughs) very my speed, but it really took me out of my comfort zone and challenged my assumptions about what was possible. Like it wasn't just accept what is go ahead and screw with it, take it apart, put it back together, talk to your athletes, collaborate, all those concepts came from just learning from a lot of different people. And you were really important to that process. And, you know, CCR, I think really thrived because we had such people who let us ride in their launches, either virtually or metaphorically or literally. Well, I'm I'm happy to help. I'm honored to hear that. And that's kind of what it's about, right? Because we still have such a long way to go in this country for uh, developing para rowing uh, at all levels, recreational, therapeutic, club slash competitive or elite slash pre-elite. Like we have, rowing has a lot to offer. Uh, the sport of para rowing has a lot of growing to do, I think. Uh, you mentioned yeah. earlier about, about the equipment. I, I still believe we have a long way to go in terms of the boat design and the hull design and where we where we can get to, given that we have all kind of access to uh, better ways to design things or look at things through AI and et cetera. So I'm I'm really I'm really hopeful that we can utilize some of that just to make the sport more appealing in the long run for especially that fixed seat category. I mean, the beauty of the PR3 category for us and one of the main reasons we're successful is because of that really strong junior collegiate program that exists uh, for, we call it sliding seat rowing, but it's essentially the rowing that most clubs and colleges do where PR3 can seamlessly fit into those programs. 
um, that's not so easy for uh, those that use a fixie, the PR1 or the PR2. So in order to create those same, uh, a, a parallel track, if you will, we have to work more closely with colleges. We have to work more closely with the equipment and the restrictions there and how we can really make sure that as we bring people into the sport, that we have a way to really optimize their interaction with the equipment. I'm wondering if you, I know junior adaptive is, has been a really important concept for you bringing uh, out uh, high school students or even younger into the sport of rowing from the adaptive sphere and the, the uh, disability and sport sphere. Are there any programs to watch right now? So a, a program to watch that that's kind of a tough one because if you're talking about juniors in the, in the fixed seat categories or, or juniors altogether, mainly it is one or two athletes. When you think about a strong program, but I will tell you programs to watch on the collegiate level. Uh, I'm just going to plug two people right now. And if there's more out there and people are saying, Oh, I can't believe you didn't mention mine. That's great. I want to hear from people. Uh, But there's two programs that I've been interacting with quite a bit lately that are really encouraging athletes with disabilities to come and be recruited to their college programs. Now, it's a little bit different model from what you might think about, but University of Michigan, uh, they have one of the most comprehensive adaptive sport and fitness programs, and they they support not just a single sport. Like I know there's many uh, NC2A programs that support, say, uh, wheelchair basketball, et cetera, et cetera. What, what Michigan does is uh, support either team or individuals training for Paralympic sport. For example, we've got a a young athlete right now who's trying to get recruited into that program. And the program has a lot of support from the the men's program at Michigan. But this program is a sort of a separate track within that. But they will get some financial resources. They'll get access to varsity level uh, training facilities and things like that, which is really, really huge. So we won't be able to fully develop our athlete category in those fixed seat, our, our national team athletes, without paying attention to those formative years. So those college development opportunities are so key for any sport. Um, and we need that in the fixed seat categories. So what it probably looks like is an individual is going to come into that program. They'll be considered a, a Michigan student athlete, but uh, no, they're not going to jump in the eight every morning and train. They'll train, but maybe go to different races that are designated as part of our, our pathway. Like San Diego Crew Classic is having more uh, para events all the time. Head of the Charles having more events. So giving them an opportunity to compete and represent even at Dadvale, they're, they're really coming on in their um, para program. So that type of opportunity, I hope to see more of. The other one that we're talking with is San Diego State University. They have a really great adaptive sport and fitness program also with uh, uh, Paralympic weightlifting programs for athletes to, again, develop in team or individual sports. This week, they're hosting a Talent ID Day for para rowing in conjunction with the club program there uh, because they're trying to recruit they're trying to recruit high school students with disabilities to come be part of their program. So that's like a really different uh, type of narrative to say like, geez, will you let me in to be like, Hey, we're trying to recruit you. And and where do we, where do we find athletes to do that? You know? So I'm really excited uh, to find more collegiate programs like that, but at the high school level, I think it will continue to be a sort of a, a, a one-off athlete. That's either part of the program or part of the club program that reach out directly to us. So it's kind of hard to say, what's the the up and coming programs because we've had them they're they're all over the map from Iowa to to Florida to Philadelphia just seeing little pockets here and there but what's really exciting is the number of kids participating at youth nationals so that was I think six which doesn't sound like a lot but when you go from like two or three to six and then hopefully you know 10 to 12 next year that's when it gets really exciting yeah. And I want to actually shout out a little bit to Alabama Adopted Athletics too. It's It doesn't necessarily oh, sure. have, have rowing, but I think anytime we can have these successful uh, recruiting and ID programs, it can be duplicated or at least used as a model or a, a starting point. Um, and I know from my experience with adaptive rowing, it really does start out with onesies and twosies. Like it is really, it starts really small. I think there's a lot of programs that stop because they're like, oh, but we only have one athlete or it's not worth the time or the money or the volunteer time. And it's like, oh no, it is absolutely worth it with the one uh, single athlete. So if one kid comes to your boathouse and wants to try adaptive rowing and you need some help with that, 
reach out to Ellen, reach out to me. We are absolutely here to help you get that student on a good path. But you mentioned Alabama because they they have really strong, uh, I think it's wheelchair basketball. There's a lot of programs oh. in the South and Southwest. It's strong uh, wheelchair rugby, wheelchair basketball, wheelchair tennis. One of the things that's made us successful in terms of recruiting is just a relationship with these coaches. So we don't want to yeah. go in and, and sort of cherry pick and, and pull athletes away. But where there's a, an opportunity for an athlete to either choose rowing in their off season, because those seasons would be a bit different or to cross over into another sport where they may be more successful. We definitely would be open to that. And we hear a lot about collegiate rowers walking onto college teams because they didn't make the swim team or they didn't make the volleyball team. So it goes both ways. You know, I think there's probably students who wanted to go to Alabama because of the adapted athletics program. And I'm sure they have a recreational version, you know, like an intramural or or something, but there are students looking for sports no matter what. You know, and yeah, and we just have a great change from a uh, walk on to roll on. Exactly, yeah. yeah. We uh, we just had Mitch King, who's oh, a yeah. coxswain, yeah, yeah. And he was on our last episode, and he talked about how it really reframed for him what his physical potential was to become a rower and become part of a rowing team. He had not been an athlete up yeah. until being a graduate student. Um, and it really just kind of broke apart and opened up his world, his worldview of his own physical capability. And really philosophical about, about coxing in the sport and how coxins can help bring a team together. So I really appreciated that. So Beantown, let's talk about it. The Super Bowl. We are recording this one month from the two, 2023 Head of the Charles, and it is coming. This episode will air Uh, the weekend of the Charles. And we couldn't think of a better person to talk to about the Charles from inside out than you. Can you tell us what's your first memory of the head of the Charles? Oh, first memory. Um, That's when, when I was uh, trying out for BRC and, uh, you know, I had said, I'm going to row port and the coach said, okay, we'll stick you in a pair on port for a week. And you're going to stroke the four at the head of the Charles for BRC. And I was like, oh my God. So I did it. And, um, you know, we came third, which I thought was really great. But then I realized I got BRC and like, no, you're supposed to win. I was like, oh, okay. That's when I learned. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) A little more serious than I thought. (laughs) Yeah. I think I actually raced once in the, once in college. I think I did it once. So, but you know, that was back in the day when everything was run out of magazine beach. It was this giant mosh pit of trail and everyone concentrated in one area and now it's like activities and and uh, vendors and announcing stations all up and down the river super cool it's three days long now it's really great i am the co-chair of the announcing committee uh with uh, nick copley i get to put rowing knowledgeable people up and down the river and turn them loose on the microphones and uh, we'll see what happens but i'm really excited this year they have 25 inclusion doubles entered which is huge so how did you become one of the voices of the regatta (laughs) again like the boston rowing community is very accessible so back in the day was uh it was tom tiffany and nigel gallagher standing on that peak of magazine beach with the printed program and a bullhorn that was announcing. And, you know, it's sort of like, that would be a good place to watch and hang out. And I would say, I'm exhausted, Ellen, you call a few. So we would just, you know, nothing was recorded. You could kind of say lots of off color things and no one would care and probably mm-hmm. no one would hear you anyway. So that was kind of how it started. And he handed it off and then it got a little more formal and we stayed working on it together for a while. And uh, then we just, uh, I don't really know exactly when the handoff was. If you ask me how long I volunteered, I have no idea, but it, it definitely started with Tom Tiffany and Nigel Gallagher on the magazine beach with a program and a bullhorn. <laughs> nice. And how has it changed over the years since then announcing? Um, well, they're, they've got the broadcast element to it now. So you get a little bit of video screen in there. But for the most part, it's one of those things that the announcing that I manage is really announcing to the crowd. And that sort of remains sometimes tongue in cheek. We try and give it enough color for people who know nothing about rowing to learn something about the sport. But when you're announcing to the people that are on the banks um, and each station is kind of near a, a hometown club, like Riverside is the first announcing station. So you'd be able to say things maybe a little bit more specific to that crowd or at the Weld Boathouse where Harvard and Radcliffe uh, crews will be launching from something specific there. Then we got Cambridge Boat Club, which is, of course, we got a headquarters. So there's lots of lots of people who are involved in organizing the regatta competing uh coming through the, through those doors there on that day 
So I think the announcing itself is the flavor is still similar, but it's having those five and six stations up and down rowers being able to hear their, hear their name when they need it the most as they're trying to pass somebody or, or get to that finish line. We have the bios, we try and incorporate the bios in advance, but it's sometimes it's just so many competitors and in those tight races, it's just, it just gets it a little bit nutty at some of the bridges, but it's essentially the same uh, with a little bit more. They got the live feed on the website, but I think the broadcast area is where they'll really take video to the next level, but that's a bit of a different department from mine. Um, you know, deep down, we're all just old school on our committee. You know, we may as well just have the program in a bullhorn and, and, and wing it. <laughs> you know, I was yeah. about something uh, yesterday, kind of for the the first time is about kind of about um, the announcers remaining impartial, right? You're watching something really exciting or something's about to happen at Elliot and you really can't have an impact though on, on the race. Yeah, we may know more about people, but it's really important to just not do the work of the referees, for example, um, or the work or the of- coxswain. Or the coxswain or the emergency team, quite frankly. We have to uh, call it as we see it. Uh, there's no problem to call out great rowing when we see great rowing or uh, not so great rowing. You know, sometimes that gets called out as well, but uh, it's, it's a great group of people to work with. And uh, I really enjoy it. Yeah. I got to announce the uh, row for the cure yesterday, or now it's called the pink ribbon row. And I found that most of my job was uh, fielding questions from parents who are new row, who are new rower parents. And I would, every 10 minutes or so, I'd be like, this is a 4,500 meter race, which means they, and here's the start line and here's the finish line. And if you'll look East and then they would all like look East, this whole crowd of people it was really cute. A lot of them were really grateful for, we don't get the sport. We don't know what we're looking at. We don't know what we're looking for. And I, and I'd give them tips. I'm like, if you have binoculars, look for their blade colors. So it was just really fun to like connect people to the sport and, yeah. and say, and they'd be like, where do we find results? Where do I find my child? It makes the sport better. It may, because yeah. um, we need more people to row, quite frankly, we can't, we can't thrive as a sport. If we just only make obscure inside comments about racing, uh, no one will turn up to watch. That's what I like about uh, the head of the Charles, like kind of brings in a lot of people who just want to come and see what it's all about. Cause there's so many other fun things that you can do along the river. <clears throat> and in that way, we really can maybe help to grow that sport by letting somebody know what's going on. And I do hear from a lot of people who have come to the regatta for the first time. They said, wow, thank you. I had no idea what was actually going on. And so in that way, we like to think we, we sort of help grow the sport. Behind the scenes, what's something that people might find really surprising about Head of the Charles? Oh, behind the scenes, um, probably how small the office is, maybe. I mean, it's like, it's tiny. It's just in the uh, second floor of Cambridge Boat Club. You know, it's, I don't even think it's bigger than the locker room. And they do an incredible job as a really small staff and a really small office. And when you think about the product that they churn out, um, it's, it's incredible inside scoop on that I don't know I think a lot of people don't realize that we announced from the roof of the Cambridge Bow Club <laughs> and it's pretty treacherous like oh I'm at Cambridge I'm like you have to climb out the window and then you've got to climb over the fence and then you actually sit on the roof and you have to be careful um yeah. so that's that pretty like an insurance <laughs> concern but <laughs> we like it great vantage point and we've also brought in um some incredible anthem singers we do a live anthem from Cambridge Boat Club every year and we've we've got trained opera singers like we get really high quality trained professional singers to do that anthem so if you're awake early enough and can catch that 8 a.m live stream um you'll hear amazing rendition of the national anthem I think what I found really interesting, I talked to Amanda Cox from the media company the PR company the other day and she's actually going to send me an org chart of the head of the Charles. She said, people would be surprised that it starts with four people and it goes to like 15 people. And then it goes to like hundreds of people from that point forward. And there's like 2000 in total. And the other thing I thought she, she said that was really interesting was that former race directors come back as volunteers and are just like heavy knowledge on the event, but get to be like in a volunteer capacity and maybe something fun. So Rachel and I are, are planning our media, um, pl our media campaign, you know, during the Charles and uh, this year. And so one of the things we want to do is find some of those former race directors as volunteers and, and uh, get their, get their take on yeah. things. Just come to, just come to Cambridge Bowl Club because they're mm -hmm race directors they're also racing i'm racing in the masters 50 plus what's some favorite images or memories you have of the event 
Well, I think my favorite uh, memories is, as I said, like getting to announce from Cambridge Boat Club, it's quite high up and you're looking down on the Elliott Bridge, which is kind of a, a steep turn. And uh, what I love most is just seeing, you know, five five boats across or four eights going through and you think no way they're going to fit and somehow those coxswains do it that's incredible sometimes they don't you see a few oar clashes there um that's when you realize like it's not just rowing and training you have to have your wits about you and so i do enjoy announcing from cambridge boat club for that reason some of those junior eights those are incredible jobs so they're their first time the head of the charles and they are fearless they they get through that turn and that bridge whether there's people beside them or or not and uh, i think it's a, a great vantage point I'm really glad that you mentioned the Elliot because everybody knows like that's a place that you want to you want to hunker down for an hour and watch. The other big thing is everyone likes to do is get up on the bridges to watch. Is there a spot on the course that maybe we're not thinking about as spectators that you think is a really great place to see the action? Um, well, I'm just really glad they've added a beer garden. <laughs> that's always a great place. Honestly, anywhere, there's really not, uh, you know, there's every spot has its different flavor. You know, you've got the tents over there at the finish area. You've got sort of that in between the Weeks footbridge and the Anderson bridge near Harvard and Radcliffe. You've got Harvard Square, but you've got two different announcing stations there calling that like reunion village. So that collegiate reunion type of atmosphere down there. Uh, the bridges are one of the more popular ones. So if you want a spot on a bridge, you kind of get there early and hunker down. And uh, I, I think the bridges are are the funnest place, obviously, for the um for the athletes going under the bridge. Cause if you've got people on that bridge and mm-hmm. you know you need a little boost and you come through this arch and this, you know, people start screaming for you, that that's really pretty great. So uh, I think the bridges are probably the best place to watch from. Yeah, yeah, I know when you when you do your warm-up row or your practice row the day before, doing the whoop whoop as you go under the bridge <laughs> you're in your in your boat is really fun. One of my favorite memories is being a, a, a coxswain in a bow loader and looking up and getting to see everyone on the bridge. And that's mm-hmm. a really different experience than what the rowers are getting. Yeah, yeah. we see them uh, after we've gone under, yeah. you know, and you really hope they don't drop something on you. Um, I remember a, a favorite image of mine was the heavyweight Navy men's crew and the guy lost his rudder. The coxswain lost his rudder and he used his arm. Yeah, and he put his arm in the water. It's like, I mean, imagine a heavyweight men's crew, how fast they're going and how heavy that would be. That was quite something. Yeah. Yeah. We had a listener actually ask us a question that said, uh, our coxswain for our men's eight, they're meeting up in Boston. Our coxswain for our men's eight has not coxed in several years. Should I be worried? What do you say? Are you asking me? Yes. Listen, if you're not worried about your head of the trials race, then you probably shouldn't race at all. Like everybody should be worried about their race. Once you're on the race course, like it's fairly manageable as long as you have control of your shell. So if you're not, if you're not nervous about the head of the trials, (laughs) there's something wrong with you because I personally am terrified, but Hey, that doesn't stop me. I remember a couple of years ago, I was really like in a weird space about coxing it. I'd coxed it several times, but that morning I was just really getting like tense about it. And this young coxswain with was with my team and she never coxed it. And she was like, whatever. Like she had, she said she hadn't studied. She wasn't studying. She was just going to get in the boat and go. And I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> yeah, like meanwhile, Rachel has like a printed out map. It's like marked and there's like this yeah. tree and that tree, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I went to the Yaz uh, seminar at CRI a few years ago and I went because I had brought two para rowers and they were rowing the double. Remember Aaron and, and uh, Amy rode the double PR one. I just remember the Yaz seminar and all these wide eyed, you know, junior coxswains and things. I was like, I want you to cox my life. Yaz, because she was so merciless and ruthless about her approach, which was, I just thought really cool. And I was like, I don't want to be on the course against her for sure. (laughs) So I think there, that's something they should consider is that there will be coxswains who know more or maybe assume they know more. Um, So there's lots of levels of of experience on the course. The main thing to know is when to yield. (laughs) Oh yeah. The biggest decision to make. You know, we're all there for the rowing. Either we're going to be on the water, we're going to be coxing, we're going to be spectating. But a lot of other stuff happens there along the shore. As you mentioned, there are vendors and vendor tents. Is there anything else going on that we should be aware of and that we can check out? 
Yeah. Well, I'll make a plug actually, because on Saturday at noon, I'll be last year, I ran a, a sort of just general athlete meet and greet for, for para athletes. They'd be competing later in that day. We want to get everyone together, let them hear about the national team and, and how to come out for it this year being the Paralympic year or leading up to the Paralympic year. We're having that again, it will be much more specific where athletes, coaches, friends, and family can learn about what the requirements are to, uh, to consider coming out for the program. And like I said, we expect it to be hopefully really well subscribed with 25 people entered in the, just the inclusion double. And there's a, a, a few fours uh, entered as well. So I'm really excited with the total number of para and adaptive athletes that are, that are coming out for the regatta this year and hope to see as many of them as possible at the U S rowing tent uh, for meet and greet on Saturday at 12 noon. Great. We're going to add that to our schedule of uh, what, where we need to be. We are definitely looking for, some fun opportunities. And one other one I wanted to ask you about was the presentation of the Ellen Minster trophy, which was introduced in 2021. Can you tell us about that trophy and when that gets uh, awarded and will you be there? I will be there if I'm not rowing or announcing, but yeah, no, that was really special. I think probably the, um, my favorite part was I had heard they were naming the trophy, but what I didn't know was that at the inaugural trophy, they had asked Christine Smith, Christine Collins, uh, my former pair partner to give some remarks about it. It was really incredible because she's an incredible athlete. As I said, she went on to make the Olympic double and in the next Olympic cycle and get a medal. And she's, you know, she sort of spoke to that sense of, of justice. I can't really tell you what it means to have that trophy, but also have it presented in that way. Some of my family members there, my wife was there, my sister was there. It was really moving. And I'm really glad to have, I think there's three total entries this year. It's difficult to put together a, a pair of four. So that's, that's really cool. And I think we'll try and get, I think we'll get more international crews to come over uh, because LA 2028, you know, Olympics uh, being on our home turf, that'll be great. But um, I think I will be there. I hope I will be there. I don't know the schedule of that. Like (laughs) I got all I can do to manage what's in front of me, but it's a huge honor to have that trophy and um, really grateful. And it's definitely part of your legacy, you know, and and everything that you've put into the sport since uh, 91, you know, starting out this whole thing. So Thank you yeah. for being with us and thank you for sharing your whole story. And we're excited to see you in Boston and it's going to be great. All right. Sounds good. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ellen. All right. Take care. You guys too. See, right, y'all. see ya. Bye. To see photos of Ellen and get links to the people, clubs, and events mentioned in this episode, check out the show notes on our website. Thanks to a special group of our patrons, Jill M, Bobby K., Dave H, Arthur W, Lenore A, Chelsea V, Stephanie M, KCD, Alan M, whose support helps make this podcast possible. Join our team for as little as $5 a month at steadystatenetwork.com slash Patreon. State Podcast is sponsored in part by Rosource, providing creative design for clubs, organizations, and regattas. Get the design help you need at rosource.com. Steady State is more than a podcast. We get together on Instagram Live for coffee chat every Friday morning at 8 a.m. West, 11 East. We bring that post-practice coffee with teammates vibe online to talk with the community about all things rowing. Grab your favorite mug and add your voice to the conversation. Get more info when you subscribe to our weekly e-newsletter. This episode was written, produced, hosted, and edited by me, Tara Morgan. And me, Rachel Friedman. Tara provides additional audio engineering and is our sponsor coordinator. Rachel manages our website, social media, and e-newsletter. Our theme music is by Jonas Hipper. Between us, we have nearly 40 years of rowing, coaching, and coxing experience. Tara is based on Vashon Island, Washington. She founded Seize the Oar Foundation in 2010, is fanatic about coaching Learn to Row, and believes the pair is the best boat. Rachel is a longtime rower, coach, and coxswain in Washington, D.C. She's the owner of Rowsource and is a tiny bit squeamish about sculling. Find us on Instagram and Facebook at Steady State Network, Seize the Oar, and Rowsource. Catch new episodes of Steady State Podcast every other weekend, anywhere you get podcasts. Hey, Rachel, man, it's been a really fun year. This is our fourth season of the podcast. We're kind of closing out season number four, and I think we're going to take a little break. We're going to take a little break. We've been super busy, especially leading up to Head of the Charles. And then 
guess what? I'm doing something crazy right after Head of the Charles, and I am hitting the road not to go row or talk about rowing or anything. I'm just hitting the road with my husband and dog, and uh, we're going to be camping and sightseeing and hiking and all sorts of fun things. And so awesome. um, we're going to take a little a little breather from the podcast in November. I'll be in rowing still uh, at least through November 5th. So you'll hear from me, maybe some Instagram lives around the biggest event in the Northwest, which is the head of the Lake Regatta on November 5th. And yeah, we're not going away. We're just taking a little break. So stay listening, stay in touch, and we'll see you on the new podcast episodes in December. In two way enough, that's one, two. Hey, Steady State fans, it is the weekend, the big weekend. Hold on. (laughs) It's the big weekend. (laughs) Sunday, Sunday, Sunday in Boston. Um, (laughs) This weekend. (laughs) One time only two podcasters. (laughs) 5,000 meters of raceway. Half a million spectators to meet and take their pictures. (laughs) Last event so, of the weekend. No one watching. <laughs> you oh, might. Man. You might. <laughs> oh, Tara's losing it. I love it. <laughs> I was just thinking, like, you'll probably unfollow us by the end of the <laughs> Ouch, my rib. I can't laugh that hard. <laughs> probably unfollow us. It's terrible. Ah. <laughs> You'll be sick tell. of us. <laughs>